You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach. David, welcome back to the podcast. How are things? Things are actually, for me, Giles, uh, okay. And uh, I want to point out that, um, as we're going to discuss, there's quite a lot been going on in an underlying basis that's going to I think in the medium term, improve the outlook for renewable energy and decarbonisation in Australia. Well, look, I hope so. And of course, there's um, all sorts of um, interesting things happening with the coronavirus and, and quite profound changes, um, at least temporarily and for a few months in the way we act and live and, and, and do business. And it's going to be interesting to see what um, sort of impact that has on the industry. Um but look, um, we've got a really interesting interview, uh, I guess, today. Uh, Matt Gray from Carbon Tracker, he's the uh, co-host of their Power and Utilities um, section and co-author of a new report, which pointed out that um, governments and investors are at risk of wasting $1 trillion Australian if they go ahead with um, investments in coal power, basically because renewables are a cheaper option, but uh, not everyone knows it. Well, yes, we'll, we'll hear from uh, Matt in a second, and it's a great interview. And uh, uh, Carbon Tracker has quite a substantial staff now in, in Europe, and they're able to produce some comprehensive reports. And it's probably uh, worth pointing out that they use Global Energy Monitor. Well, as you and I know, uh, that used to be the old coal swarm previously announced. It's got a more anonymous name now. But uh, we interviewed, as you, as some of our listeners may recall, uh, Ted Nates, who founded Coal Swarm, uh, now the Global Energy Monitor, a couple of years back. And, uh, you know, he's, he's also got quite a, a good team working with him. And, you know, they're actually doing fantastic fundamental research that is helping to provide the facts that we all need to make progress. Mm. Well, look, we might just come back to that later. But look, a few other things happening um, in the energy market. Um, look, I guess most notably the COAG Energy Conference, Minister's Conference um, happening in uh, on Friday in Queensland. Um, it's going to be done by video link. Um, they're not all going to be flying to Brisbane and turning up because of the virus. But um, some important things um, are going to be talked about. And uh, one interesting thing that happened just in the lead up to COAG was the decision by the AEMC to um, to claw back on its proposed Kogati reforms. It seemed quite determined to go through with its um, reform to... Uh, co- well, Kogati stands for co- um, Coordinating Generation and Transmission Investment. Um, but no one really liked it, in fact, including the Australian Energy Market Operator. And it's, um, it's, it's well back on it and, and has now agreed to include this process as part of the Energy Security Board's overall review of um, market design. David, um, is this a welcome development? Well, well, well I think it is. Uh, the merits of uh, how to pay for transmission, which is what it really, and locational pricing, uh, can be debated uh, quite a lot. Uh, the point I've made uh, and others made is that it's just not the most pressing issue. The most pressing issue at the moment is to get more transmission built. Um, it, more transmission is not the answer to every problem. 
there's going to be a, a lot of other issues that we have to deal with, but I think there's a broad consensus that we need some more transmission, probably more even than the stage one and even stage two projects of the ISP. A lot of the work uh, that you and I have been talking about lately uh, kind of points to the value of doing the Marinus link in ta- another link to Tasmania to take advantage of the extra hydro resource that they've got down there. Uh, and also a link to North Queensland. I think it's in, we're becoming increasingly aware that despite its remote distance, North Queensland's wind resource and Queensland's solar resource is the most valuable um, um, resource in the country uh, because of the fact that the wind is not correlated with the wind um, everywhere else. So there's a, we need more transmission long and the short of it, and it's getting this system planned properly rather than worrying about uh, little details about uh, essentially whether users are going to pay for it directly or indirectly, that I think is the most uh, important piece of work that needs to be done. Mm, well, interesting about North Queensland, um, Copper String 2.0, the uh, proposed link between um, Mount Isa and Townsville sort of popped its head up again and sort of um, sort of pointed out the amount of minerals that could be unlocked, um, $640 million worth of copper, lead, zinc, and more interestingly, cobalt and vanadium that could be linked um, with, with a transmission line between Townsville and Mount Isa. That project actually was presented towards the, um, the Queensland government nearly a decade ago, but... Um, they sort of handballed it to Extrata, which sort of um, runs the Mount Isa Mining Centre, and they went for gas, and that's proved a disastrous decision now, which actually threatens the future of the uh, mining centre there. So um, that's one interesting thing. And look, along those lines, too, the New South Wales well, government... Well, Charles, Charles, is- Charles, just, just, just before we jump off Queensland, I think it's worth mentioning and, and failed things. I mean, a couple of years ago, and one element in the Queensland government's election strategy was the power in North Queensland. Uh, strategy, which has kind of been dead and buried. But we are coming up to another election in Queensland uh, again later this year. And I'd like to see that strategy resurrected uh, myself because I feel that promoting that strategy provides a natural alternative path to, um, you know, building a coal-fired plant or something uh, uh, at Collinsville. If you've got power in North Queensland, that provides lots of jobs and lots of investment and uh, is something for the future instead of uh, a nod to the past. And it's something that I think uh, North Queenslanders could, if it was done properly, uh, take a shine to. Well, the politics of this are really quite fraught. I mean, as we know, that that sort of debate about the coal-fired power station is going to be paying centre play, I think, in the upcoming state election. And it was really interesting, the press release from the um, at the Copper String project and sort of this ability to extract all these um, um, minerals by, by putting transmission on, did not make a single mention of the fact that um, it would also, you know, the cheap energy would come from wind and solar. It sort of left it as sort of technology agnostic. But, um, you know, we later talked to the founder and executive chairman and he said, well, obviously, it's going to be wind and solar, but it's not something that he dared to mention um, in the press release. Um, such are the politics. And it's almost the same in New South Wales. We finally got quite an important announcement last Saturday from the New South Wales government about its sort of um, the first stage of its net zero carbon strategy. And this was looking out to 2030. A couple of really important things in there, trying to attract $18 billion worth of investment, um, identifying another two renewable energy zones um, over and above the first one that it identified just a few weeks ago talking about attracting you know 17 gigawatts or something like that of wind and solar investment but it was done on a Saturday morning and um, we tried to get Matt Keane on this podcast and he wouldn't come along because he didn't want to draw too much attention to it because of fear of criticism and uh, the criticism wasn't going to come from the Greens or Labour it was going to come from within the coalition's own ranks. 
Yes, so there's that. But, I mean, I think he, he carries enough support that he'll be allowed to carry on. I mean, the point I've made is that uh, I don't think Matt Keane would be doing this if he didn't have the implicit support uh, of the Premier of New South Wales uh, and, and she appointed him into the job and I guess she's got to get take the credit for that. Uh, there's quite a schism developing between, as if there wasn't always one, between the National Party in New South Wales and, and the Liberal Party, but let's not get into the politics of it. Uh, as well as the items that you mentioned, there is a $750 million fund for uh, improving renewable type uh, or uh, electricity, perhaps in industry, uh, that's available over 10 years. The trouble is these funds get uh, announced, but then they don't always get spent. And there's probably New South Wales government's finding other areas to spend the money on just right now. But on top of that, there's also mm. the plan to electrify the Sydney buses, uh, which I think is a terrific plan and can be, could be done gradually, pretty much starting straight away. Uh, and But I would like to see a little bit more on the electric vehicle side of things, recharging networks and uh, stuff around parking that, we, that we've already talked about. But look, uh, it's, to be, it's great to have a plan uh, to talk about 230 goals as well as 250 goals, 2030 goals, I mean to say. Uh, but let's see some action. I mean, in the past, New South Wales has been very long on talk and relatively short on actual achievements. Absolutely. And uh, we'd love to have uh, the Energy Minister, Matt Keane, on the podcast to explain all of that. But look, there's a few more positive things happening elsewhere. I mean, um, the Clean Energy Council um, has put out quite a detailed request list from the COAG Minister's meeting, pointing out the sort of the slump in investment and all the different roadblocks that have emerged, some of which we discussed, Kagati, uh, marginal loss factors. Uh, which haven't been changed, and um, all the other infrastructure blockages, um, which are sort of really sort of long-term solutions. But we're, we're still seeing some movement at the station. Um, interesting, I thought, that BHP, um, Glencore, um, uh, Fortescue and Hatch getting together to pursue green hydrogen. And, um, you know, Anglo-American is a um, um, you know, major fossil fuel producer, and um, this is all about green hydrogen and the potential for you know using wind and solar to create hydrogen. So that's um, that's probably been the most read story on our website um, this week. So certainly a lot of interest there, and um, a couple of smaller projects also getting advanced. Um, Snowy Hydro, the federal government, and Gentella signed a new PPA for the Sebastopol solar farm, which I think is near Tamora, and it's just been bought by FRV, who've been reasonably busy in Australia with the Moree Solar Farm and a bunch of others as well. Um, so the Moree, the Moree Solar station, Farm, David. yeah, well, Charles, the Moree Solar Farm uh, was the first solar farm in Australia to use single-axis tracking, as far as I know, and it's been a great yeah. performing uh, solar farm, and so I guess FRV gets a bit of a tick, tick for that. It's great to see Snowy stepping up to the plate some more. Uh, I think we'll uh, find later in the year that Snowy's been very busy picking up uh, its share of the electricity market, uh, you know, as a retailer, not so much in the small customers, but at the big end of town. And, uh, you know, it's the retailer that's essentially adopting the same model uh, as next era, uh, or the Gentailer, if you like, in the United States, which is, you know, basically going... Uh, you playing to the strengths of renewable. I mean, they're the, they're the ones that are looking to the future instead of looking to the past, like AGL and even more so Origin are doing. I don't want to spend too much time on on that, but another thing I think our listeners will be pleased to hear about, most of them, is the uh, Victorian government 
uh, put in another little um, uh, fish of, in, into the AEMC's uh, control. We've got to sort of chisel the AEMC out of the system as far as I'm concerned because they're the ones that have been stuffing it up as a general statement. They're not always wrong, but they've been wrong more often than right in the last few years. Uh, and uh, a lot more. And uh, the Victorian government's uh, going to uh, get rid of the RIT test for building more transmission into Victoria, which is desperately needed. But it does raise the broader problem. Uh, we've seen this with the federal government's actually going to put a billion dollars, as you might recall, into the CEFC. And uh, and it's supposed to be giving some money to the New South Wales government as well. But it does raise a quite a thorny issue of who's actually going to be own this new transmission and uh, what return they're going to expect on it. And then the consumers do end up having to pay. But in the first instance, we just need to get it built. Well, that's interesting, yes. And uh, that Victorian transmission one is going to be interesting because it's going to actually be operating as a tender, which will be run by AEMA. And I think AEMA have actually been running an expressions of interest to get some sort of gauge what is possible. And I think it's going to be one of those um, issues where a big battery may provide um, the smartest upgrade for the transmission line. They basically want to allow an extra 250 megawatts to be imported into Victoria um, at any one time. And um, um, batteries might be the easiest way to find that because they can basically sort of sit there as a security and, um, you know, if there are issues, then they can um, then they can be deployed to sort of solve those issues while other solutions are found. But um, that's pretty interesting. Um, David, I think we might um, turn to um, listen to this interview with Matt Gray. What do you reckon? Yeah, let's, let's hear what uh, Matt's got to say. Yeah, this, this is Matt Gray, the uh, co-head of Power and Utilities at Carbon Tracker. Matt Gray, thanks for joining Energy Insiders. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Well, yes, you're, you're, you're over in, um, in England and um, uh, it's the wonders of the podcast world that um, we can have you on as well. Look, we've watched you on because Carbon Tracker last week released a quite a sort of um, important report um, on the cost of various technologies. And um, the main conclusion, it seems to me, was that um, government's going to be wasting half a trillion US dollars, which is um, or more than 600 billion, I think, which is close enough to a trillion Australian dollars at the moment, um, given the currency uh, valuation, um, if they continue to support new coal plants. Um, tell us a bit more about your findings. Yes, exactly. So in this report, we look at the competitiveness of coal-fired power relative to onshore wind and utility-scale solar PV. And what we found is that it is cheaper to build new wind or solar PV on a levelized cost basis in every major market today. Um, and perhaps more importantly, 60% of the operating coal fleet has a higher marginal cost than the levelized cost of either onshore wind or solar PV, um, meaning it is going to cost more to run those plants than to build new wind or solar, which is quite a profound finding given the context of what's happening with coal-fired powered investments around the globe. So like you mentioned, 600 billion of capital um, currently in various stages of the the the, the pipeline process um, and we are concerned that if those investments go ahead those coal-fired power parts will inevitably be stranded um, because wind and solar will be a yeah. far cheaper option. 
My question is, is that why would they be going ahead? Because if the economics are such as, as it is, then why are investors going ahead with them? Is it because government has already interfered in the market to make it more interesting for them to do that? So, yeah, that's that's a, a great question. The, the main reason we are seeing that is because um, investments in coal-fired power um, currently are occurring due to reasons beyond economics so there's a lot of socio-economic factors which are driving these investments but perhaps more importantly what our analysis found is that the regions where uh, governments are planning to invest in coal there is a fundamental lack of price discovery so in markets like western europe uh, where uh, power markets are governed by um, dispatch curves, um, those investments, those markets, uh, we aren't seeing much coal-fired power at all. It's in places like Asia and in particular Southeast Asia where there are far more regulated power markets and therefore um, there are lucrative power purchase agreements to be had and therefore that is incentivizing um, investors to, to go ahead with these coal-fired um, projects despite the fact that there are lower cost options out there yeah. it's vested interests i guess and uh for as far as consumers go it's it's kind of an opportunity cost because uh they don't actually ever get to see the lower cost of the wind and solar plants that would have been or might have been built and i guess you also have to as we've discovered in australia and as, as i think it's a very legitimate issue you can't look at the wind and solar uh, cost alone uh, you have to look at the total system cost, which includes, in many cases, quite a lot of transmission and, and some uh, firming as well. Matt, I'm interested to understand, uh, I, I think you guys have uh, uh, built up pretty much a, um, a global database of all the um, uh, coal-fueled uh, uh, electricity plants around the world. Can you tell us a little bit about the quality of the data and how you got it and what uh, and just explain a little bit more about um, without getting too overboard um, uh, about why this is a great resource yeah absolutely and I, I guess just to touch on your point so a significant limitation of the report that we have done is we base our estimates on levelized cost and as you mentioned there's levelized cost in systems cost um, and I think what matters at the end of the day is how much it costs to uh, get electricity to the end consumer um, but to your question about the data set that we have so we spent the last couple of years uh, building out an asset level or boiler level um, data set which looks at the operating cost um, and profitability of all coal-fired power plants uh, operating today, so 95% of plants um, that are in operation and around 90% of plants that are either under construction or in various stages of the planning process. Um, and the metrics that we track are the short-run marginal costs, so the the, the the, the level at which uh, a plant will be dispatched. That's, that's essentially the, 
Yeah, go on. Sorry, the short-run marginal cost uh, for some of our listeners is essentially the fuel cost with a little bit extra uh, added on, I think. Is the, and it's, um, it's the key point which uh, you, and I think actually, to be fair, uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance actually made this point already that uh, we're approaching the point where the um, uh, full cost of wind and solar is lower than this, the fuel cost, essentially, the coal cost, more or less, or, uh, of coal plants. Is, is, is that, if I put that correctly? Yes, exactly. So the short run marginal cost is just the fuel cost plus any variable operations and maintenance costs. Um, and yes, you, 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 Bloomberg is right and you are right. Um, 70% of the uh, long run marginal cost is made up of the fuel cost. And the long run marginal cost is just the short run marginal cost plus any fixed operations and maintenance costs. So those costs can include um, investments that have to be made to meet air pollution regulation or investments that have to be made to maintain the performance of the boiler itself. Um, so we look at the operating costs and also uh, what we call the operating cash flow. So on a boiler by boiler basis, we're trying to understand um, whether these uh, units are cash flow positive or cash flow negative. So if you take into consideration the revenues that they're getting from uh, in-market, so wholesale power prices and out-of-market, such as capacity market payments, um, balancing payments, uh, and, and various other um, out-of-market revenues that they get, are they fundamentally um, making money or losing money? Um, and we did look at this in detail uh, in a study uh, that we did in 2018, and we found that around 40% of the operating fleet is cash flow negative. Yes, and can you just, um, I, I, I'll hand back to Giles in just a second. Uh, there's lots of other things I want to talk about, but um, uh, just if we touch on China for a while, it's a long way from London to China, uh, and I find it hard enough. I'm a few thousand kilometres closer here in Sydney. Where does your? Can you tell me a little bit about your uh, China data? Because I guess um, you know, as you as you mentioned in the introduction, it's Asia where all the action is. I, I mean, I'm personally, notwithstanding Poland and places, relatively relaxed about the outlook for uh, coal-fired generation in Europe. It's going to go down, however slowly it goes down in, in Germany, but it is definitely on the on the right uh, trajectory. But it's Asia where all the issue for for us is, and. Just tell me a little bit about how, how you get the stuff uh, out of Asia. Do you have people on the ground there or, or what do you actually do? Yes, so 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 being I think being a Westerner and studying or researching China is is very intimidating. It's an enormous place that is uh, decentralized and appears to be going undergoing rapid structural change. Um, in terms of how we get our data from China, so firstly we rely on uh, the inventory data set which is provided by the Global Energy Monitor um, that provides us with the, all the, 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 the boiler level information that we need, so uh, the boiler type, uh, who owns the boiler, where it's located, um, all those, those basic points. Um, in terms of the the regulatory characteristics um, we rely on local partners who work in china so we talk to a number of academics um, and a number of uh, not-for-profits who are based in the region 
um, and we rely on the intelligence that they they provide us. But generally speaking, I think because China uh, dominates the seaborne uh, coal market, we do have a, a good understanding of um, fuel costs in China. It's just where the uncertainty is is around revenue. So China is transitioning um, to a more um, market-based power market, and but those regulatory reforms have have occurred um, gradually and incrementally in tracking those changes and where they're occurring in certain provinces is very hard to do and something that you know we cannot do based in London which is why we we rely on our local partners I, I agree so, with you I mean I, oh sorry I'm just going to hand over to Giles but, uh, if, if, but I'll just make this pass no, 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 that I... go on Giles go ahead David. no you go you go no, no. <laughs> well, it's uh, um, look. I just was going to say I agree that uh, the average coal plant in China is not making much money. That's certainly uh, consistent with the work I do, looking at the state-owned generators. But it's also true that coal prices have gone down and will probably go down further. And I think just for our our listeners, China, the um, January February combined um, electricity consumption numbers in China were only released in the last day or two, and they're down ten percent year on year. So that's uh, <clears throat> a good start to the year from the environment's point of view. Um, look, I might mm. just turn back uh, more generally, Matt, to to uh, away from this report even a little bit and just ask, um, I mean, you, you do this work and it has some effect. Um, do you think it makes much of a difference in, in, in the real world? And what is the, more generally even than that, what's the attitude you're finding amongst investors when you go out and market the report uh, towards coal-fired generation. I mean, RWE, you, you guys published a report last year that RWE got very grumpy about, and um, they've actually had a few wins since then. RWE is one of Europe's or Germany's biggest uh, uh, coal-generating utilities. How, how are you finding the attitude towards coal, coal generation and coal in general in, in, from what you see? Um, so, it, I mean, it, it depends very much who we talk to. So we spend most of our time speaking with capital markets investors, so asset managers and asset allocators in Europe and the US. And the consensus um, in uh, Europe and the US is that coal-fired power is on the way out. Um, it has very it's a, it's a trivial fuel with regards to um, how much money capital markets are investing in uh, thermal coal. Um, so their their view is that uh, coal fired power is 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 and it's, and the and the transition off coal fired power is more or less a done deal. It's when you go to Asia that you hear the exact opposite narrative, which is coal's the cheapest. Um, it'll be cheap for the foreseeable future and therefore everyone will continue to keep investing in it. Um, so what our report does, I think, is uh, debunk um, the perception in Europe and, and the US that coal is, thermal coal is on the way out um, because clearly it's not if um, governments and investors are piling in 600 billion uh, US dollars into new coal. Um, and equally, what our report does to challenge Asian 
um, investors and policymakers is to show the enormous deflationary trends in renewable energy that we've seen over the last 10 years and to get them to look um, you know, a couple of years into the future to, to see what is going to happen, which is the reality that you know, uh, running coal plants is, is, is going to cost more than building new wind and solar. And therefore, if these policymakers and governments are interested in giving uh, investors, sorry, giving consumers the lowest cost electricity, then they need to be thinking very seriously about stopping these coal investments as soon as possible. Because the alternative for those uh, Asian policymakers and governments is that they subsidize uh, electricity costs for the end consumer, which does already happen in many parts of Asia at the moment. But the flip side of that is um, if they keep investing heavily in coal-fired power, then someone is going to pay for that. And it will either be um, the state through higher debt or it will be the taxpayer through higher taxation. It's um it's interesting, Matt. Um, so this six hundred billion dollars. Um, how much capacity does that actually represent? So that represents about five hundred gigawatts. So uh, that is a, a phenomenal amount of uh, of capacity, power generation capacity. Just and to put that in context, going... just to put that in context uh, for for our listeners, there's about something like 1,000 gigawatts of coal-fired generation, give or take 50 or 100 uh, in China right now. And China, when you add it all up, is close to one-third of annual global carbon emissions. That's probably a slight exaggeration, mm. but that's the uh, very round numbers. Back to you, Giles. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's also equivalent to about 10 times the size of um, Australia's um, current in, installed capacity. So does that, so 500 gigawatts, it's a frightening high number. Is that a mixture of committed and projects in the pipeline? Yes. Yeah, so, so what our analysis shows, and this again is based off uh, the Global Energy Monitor's data set, is that there's around 200 gigawatts of coal under construction and another 300 gigawatts which are in various stages of the planning process so yes sadly um 200 gigawatts is being built as we speak um so if a decision isn't made by policy makers and investors this uh stuff will be will be operated in the next three to five years I, so your I, main I, task I is really just trying to dissuade no, that no. 300 gigawatts that's in the pipeline. Um, um, and have, have you got have, have you got any initial responses to this report from, from the people that you're actually trying to target? Um, yes. I mean, like I said, the, the responses are, are, are similar to what I mentioned before. Our, our readership in, in Europe and the US uh, is surprised that there's still a lot of new coal being built uh, despite the prevailing economics um, and I, I mean I just just to put to put it in context Europe has had um, has had you know uh, uh, a, a strong carbon price over the last two years um, and more recently it's had lower gas prices so things haven't worked out well for coal-fired power generators in Europe so we are seeing uh, the utilization rates of coal generation um, declining quite significantly and and in the u s we have the shell gas revolution and very good um, 
solar and wind resources. So this a similar trend is happening. Um, so our readership in the US and the EU is, is is surprised that this is happening. But I mean, I think equally, our readership in Asia is surprised that these deflationary trends in renewable energy are happening so quickly. And I think it's that uh, second inflection or tipping point that surprises them the most and I think really resonates with them, which is it's going to be cheaper to build new renewables than to continue to run a coal-fired power plant. Well, it sounds a bit like Australia, actually, just sort of the mixture between the people in the energy market who understand the sort of deflationary impact of renewables and the, the people in many of the governments and the conservative commentary that um, that refuse to believe it and still convinced that coal provides the, uh, the cheapest option. Charles, I, I think, too, there's a role... Uh... You know, it's we've seen a lot, not a lot, and this this report is probably the most comprehensive that's readily available on the state of the e- economics of global coal. But where I think uh, where there still remains a need is to demonstrate for countries like uh, China and Vietnam, which is one of the fastest growing markets for coal generation in the world, uh, and Russia probably too, how you can actually do it with renewables. We need, uh, in, you know, <laughs> a bit more um, more positive whole of system analysis that shows there was a great report that, wasn't, that came out over the New Year period uh, before the virus hit, last time I mentioned that word, that uh, showed in China how they could phase out coal plants, uh, you know, uh, how to do it without hurting their GDP very much. And then we just need to get the other shoe to drop, uh, which is to show how you can build the new system, not just with a whole mix of wind and solar, because it takes a lot more than that, as, as we're discovering in every country that gets up to renewable penetrations above 50%, you start to run into a lot of other issues, like not enough transmission and so on. So so we, I think mm-hmm. some reports about how that can be done country by country uh, would also be a great contribution just for future suggestions. People got nothing else to well, do, Matt, stuck at home. <laughs> Matt, hop onto it, please. Um, does, does, do, do you have an estimate of? Um, I mean, obviously these things just basically running then because of government subsidy and and, and fear. Do you have a um, an estimation of how much that subsidy continues to be worth? I mean, I know that the International Monetary Fund puts the global subsidy for all fossil fuels, and this includes discounted oil and um, diesel and what have you, to in 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 many countries at about five trillion dollars a year or something um do you have anything any um, sort of handle on the level of subsidies to the coal-fired generation um industry across the world um no no we don't is is the the short answer um and i i think it, it depends on how you define a subsidy so i what we i mean the re the, how we think about it is there's liberalized uh power markets and there's regulate, regulated power markets. Um, liberalized power markets, if, you, if you're running at a loss, that's something that's happening on a company balance sheet. Um, so that isn't inherently a subsidy. But what we are finding in liberalized power markets is that coal generators are hanging in there, um, operating at a loss for two reasons. The first one is that they potentially see the market tightening in the future whereby power prices will increase and they'll become cash flow positive but the second and more concerning reason is that they are hanging in there in the expectation that they will get retirement payments in the future and that is essentially what's happened in germany and is 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 deeply concerning um given 
that these units are running at a loss um, and therefore um, we don't think the taxpayer should be <laughs> paying for something that is uh, loss-making. Um, in regulated markets, yeah, it is It is essentially a, a, a pure subsidy if you have a risk-free PPA that is being signed for a power generation technology that isn't the least cost option. Um, so toward to your point about how we need to transition from doing uh, levelized cost analysis to systems cost analysis is is very important in proving that point. Um, that is a, a huge undertaking and um, it is something that we're looking closely at at the moment. Um, again, we're sort of finding similar, I, th I think, issues uh, with regards to data. Uh, it, it took us a couple of years to build up this global data set um, of coal-fired units. Now what we need to do is to build up a similar data set of what's happening at grid level. Um, that data is very uh, is publicly available in, in, in Europe and the US, but you go to places like uh, Southeast Asia and there is there is a dearth of data um, and that is that is a, a fundamental challenge to to getting um, to doing you know robust and defensible systems planning analysis. I think Giles also what uh, what uh, what Matt's work shows indirectly is just the power of a carbon uh, price. You know, Europe's taken I don't know fifteen or twenty years really to get its act together on that, but uh, it started in the same position more or less uh, as as Australia did back when we had a carbon price, but we just gave up, uh, and uh, Europe kept going. And they've made it work and you get an orderly transition. And so kind of it compensates for uh, any subsidies mm. as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Yeah, Matt. Matt, maybe one final question. I mean, when you prepare reports like this, um, I guess this sort of, you know, you, you find the shocking statistic that um, there's 500 gigawatts of coal in the pipeline, but then you also find this sort of analysis that shows that it's actually really expensive to do this and the much cheaper option would be wind and solar. Does that give you heart? I mean, what, what, how do you feel about the sort of the future that um, we're presented with when you, when you produce reports like this? I mean, do you feel a bit more depressed or more optimistic um, in the hope that sort of facts may win? out in the end and um and influence sort of investors and and, and government and, and governments um i mean i i think it depends on on what day you get me um <laughs> i i think in general uh very very optimistic that the economics is fundamentally in favor of the energy transition um and i think economics is an important driver and without the economics um, on our side, we would be flogging a dead horse. Um, that said, I think economics is just one factor that governments take into consideration when they are thinking about um, the energy transition and the power transition. Um, so getting a handle on the socioeconomic factors um, and how we can accelerate um, those uh, challenges and barriers to the energy transition is becoming increasingly important. Um, but in terms of the economics, uh, for us, it's 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 um, more or less a done deal when it comes to coal-fired power. Um, we do need to double down on systems uh, cost analysis, which we 
plan to do, and increasingly um, a number of institutions are doing uh, that work. Um, and, you know, I think our job at Carbon Tracker is just to educate our readership, which is, which is capital markets investors and um, increasingly um, fixed income investors about, you know, what's happening uh, due to the deflationary trends of renewable energy and what will happen uh, to their bottom line if they keep uh, doubling down on coal-fired power despite uh, prevailing economic trends. Well, hopefully a report that says they might, uh, at risk of losing $1 trillion Australian, um, may actually sort of help shift the debate. Look, Matt, um, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. We do appreciate it and congratulations on the report and uh, we look forward to seeing your um, next piece of work. Thank you and thank you for having me, guys. No worries. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Matt. Thanks indeed. Great piece of work. Cheers. And that was Matt Gray, the co-head of um, um, Power and Utilities at Carbon Tracker. Look, it's interesting. I think I meant, made the mention. I mean, you know, he, he was talking about this, uh, you know, the cost of renewables and the the advantages is widely recognised in, in Western European and US markets um, and probably in Australian markets, but um, not so much in Southeast Asia and uh, not so much in the conservative part of politics politics in, in Australia. So I do wonder sometimes, um, you know, facts, economics, um, what it will take to actually sort of shift the balance of investment. I mean, we're still talking about new coal generators in Australia. Well, well, well Giles, I, 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 I mean, I, um, uh, you don't want to underestimate what's been done in South in the way of new coal generation in Southeast Asia. But uh, you can find, if you listen to Tim Buckley uh, and various others, you can see that in India there's been a tremendous amount of progress made by renewables. Uh, we can even see, as I've mentioned here, on, uh, that in Vietnam, the eighth power plan, which has just been developed now, was going to have a lot of coal, but the recent indications are that they're going to cut back on that quite substantially. Um, and even in China, um, you know, we've got this debate about the next five-year plan and what goes into it. And uh, there's, there's just a lot of confusion. There's 4 million uh, coal miners in China, which sounds like a lot, even relative to a population of 1.3 billion. But, you know, we've already seen over a period of time how they've been able to reduce the coal workforce in Germany and in the UK and gradually redeploy them into other areas of the economy. Um, so it can be done. And I think myself, there are more signs around that, uh, that 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 the slope of the curve is changing again. You know, it's not um, not a done deal by any means, but uh, I wouldn't be despairing just now. Well, good stuff. That's a nice positive way to end the um, podcast. Um, look, thanks very much to our sponsors, Solarate Energy and Evergen. Um, thanks to you, David. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in once more. Please leave a review on your favourite podcast platform or more particularly on um, the Apple's iTunes. Um, that helps us get more listeners. And um, David, thanks very much. And I look forward to coming back next week uh, with another, another great guest. And I'll leave our listeners with the thought that there was about 200 megawatts of uh, new uh, solar done in Australia behind the meter in January and I, or 220 megawatts and probably 200 megawatts in February. So that's one part. Of, and uh, I think I believe you, if you put uh, new solar on and you're a small business, you actually get a complete write-off of the cost of it right now up until June the 30th. Uh, so that's a fantastic, uh, you know, uh, your after-tax cost is a lot lower than it was going to be only a week ago. So I, that's pretty terrific. We're going to see the commercial market boom once more. Thanks once again, David. Thanks to our listeners and thanks to our sponsors. We'll be back again next week. Bye for now.
Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.